0: Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great truth of Christ's victory over death and sin and hell. Lord, may you make our ears attentive and give us humble and receptive hearts this morning to receive your word to receive Christ as he is offered to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 16 finds Israel in a unique position. They are no longer slaves in Egypt. They've been redeemed, delivered. And yet they are also not yet in the promised land. They are on their way, as it were. They were not what they once were, and yet they are not yet what they will be. You and I find ourselves in a similar position as believers. Christ, by his death and resurrection, have brought us deliverance. We have been led out of captivity to sin and Satan, delivered from judgment, led across the baptismal waters, and are destined for the land of promise. But we're not there yet. We are in the wilderness, as it were, having been promised a heavenly country and yet awaiting our full possession of it. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead physically. You and I have not been physically raised from the dead, though that is coming. How then do we live in the here and now? How do we live between Easter and Advent, between the Exodus and the Promised Land, as we wander the wilderness of this world? Number 16 addresses this question, and it does so by way of a caution or a warning. The people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt, and yet, how do they behave on the other side of the Red Sea? If you know your Old Testament, you know they grumble, they complain, they do not trust God. They turn to idols, seemingly every step of the way. Both Moses and the Lord calls them a stiff-necked people. In the book of Numbers, Israel actually came to the promised land. They came right up to the borders. But the Lord commanded them to send in spies to check out the land and bring back a report. And we learn the Lord did this to test their faith. He wanted them to know kind of what they were getting into and would they trust him to bring uh, them this land. The spies go out, they bring back word, a good word. The land is a good land, abundant, flowing with milk and honey. However, the people there, and their cities are large and strong. And on hearing this report, the people of God lose faith, and so they grumble against Moses and Aaron in chapter 14. They say, "Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They did not trust that God would give them the strength that they need. When Moses and Aaron tried to convince them to go into the land and to trust that the Lord would deliver it to them, they started calling for them to be stoned to death. And for this lack of faith, the Lord was angry with them and sentenced them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until all that generation that rebelled and grumbled had perished. That's chapter 14. Here in chapter 16, just a little while after, we have yet another grumbling of Israel against the Lord and against Moses and Aaron. This rebellion is called Korah's Rebellion, because he was the main leader. But numerous other leaders were involved too. Listen to verses 1 through 2. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. This is not just Korah. This is Korah, Dathan, Abiram, On, their men, and 250 chief chosen influential men of Israel, all rising up against Moses and against the Lord. Their complaint was multifaceted. It involved a complaint about the priesthood and a complaint about leaving the comforts of Egypt. So first we see the complaint about the priesthood. In verse 3, we read, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? We learn a little bit more about the nature of their objection through Moses' reply in verses 8 through 11. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Korah and his company are against the exclusivity of the priesthood set up. Why should it be that only... Certain people we call priests can draw near and minister inside the tabernacle or that only the high priests can go into the holy of holies. Didn't the Lord say on Mount Sinai that you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Notice a few things about this complaint. First, this complaint is based on a truth the Lord did call Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In a sense, they are all priests. They are a priestly nation. And so it is that false teachings, Christian cults, often will base themselves on a truth of Scripture, but subtly distorted or overemphasized or pushed too far. Notice as well, second, That this complaint pits God's word against itself. Yes, the Lord did call all of Israel a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19, verse 6. But then he also specified later on in that same book, who is able to draw near to him and on what terms. And he established a priestly tribe from which certain people would fulfill the office of priests for that very task. So Korah is setting scripture against each other. He's taking the one, but he's throwing out the other. Working with priests, I'm not going to pay attention to what else the Lord said about who can draw near to him. I'm just going to take this one. Brothers, sisters, we should never interpret scripture in a way that goes against another passage. God never contradicts himself. Third and finally, notice that this complaint fails to acknowledge adequately the holiness of God. We cannot draw near to him on our own terms. What do you think would happen if the president of the United States came to Minneapolis, or wait, where are we? Milwaukee, (laughs) came to Milwaukee to give a speech. And it was a big event being held downtown And then you decide, I'm just going to run right up to him and shake his hand. What do you think would happen? Do you think you'd make it to him? No, you'd get body slammed by some hefty set bodyguards and you'd be carted away. So we recognize this with regard to eminent, you know, worldly politicians. Do we recognize it with God? We cannot just draw near to him on our own terms we can only do so on his terms. We are sinners who have no right to his presence, and Korah is not showing an adequate awareness of this. As though he can decide who, how, and when to draw near. So that's the first aspect of the complaint. It's a complaint about the priesthood, the exclusivity of it, but it's also a complaint about. Leaving the comforts of Egypt, in verses 12 to 15, we read of additional grounds of the complaint from other participants in the rebellion. Notice, when there is unrest and a movement rising up against the established order, there will often be within it a variety of views and motivations. They may all agree on some central points, but what animates different groups within that may in fact be different. And that's what we see here. Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab of the tribe of Reuben, give a slightly different yet similar account for their grievances. First, it involved a complaint about Moses' leadership. They accused Moses of making himself a prince over the people. Just as Korah expressed discontentment over the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites, so Dathan and Abiram complain about the leadership of Moses. They have in common a lack of respect for and submission to proper authorities established by God. Second, they fault Moses for not taking them away, or rather, they fault Moses for taking them away from the abundance of Egypt. They fault him for not leading them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And they fault him for making them die in the wilderness. They say in verses 13 to 14, Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Notice how they describe Egypt Moses has brought them up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. A land flowing with milk and honey taking a term that is commonly used to describe the promised land, they apply that term to Egypt, the land of their former captivity and servitude. This could be related to a common experience that we all have of nostalgia, yearning for the good old days. Oh, for when things were better, in the past, of course. That sense of Yearning for how good things used to be can lead to a discontentment and a blindness to the gifts and graces of God in the present. Oftentimes, too, those good old days weren't actually quite so good as they seem to you now. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10 says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So there is a kind of ungodly nostalgia at this point to such an extent that they view Egypt as the promised land. We were in the promised land, essentially, that they were slaves under a tyrant who ordered thousands and thousands of Hebrew children put to death. Notice as well the blame shifting that's going on in this complaint. They fault Moses for not bringing them into the land and making them die in the wilderness. In reality, the people themselves refused to enter into the land, even though Moses and Aaron urged them to do so. And it is God's divine judgment that that generation perish in the wilderness. And yet, unwilling to accept responsibility for their own sin and wrongdoing, they foist it upon their leaders. You've not brought us into the land. You're making us die in the wilderness. This is a common temptation. The temptation to blame shift. To not own up. To put the fault on someone else. It's been going on ever since the Garden of Eden. As Adam points to Eve, Eve points to the serpent. And we have a tendency to point the finger against the authorities and leaders that have been placed over us as well, and in particular, whether those authorities and leaders are in the home, the workplace, society, rather than accept responsibility for what you've done or how you've contributed or not contributed to the way things are, just blame whoever's in charge, right? Ah, it's, it's because we have bad leaders. That's why things are bad. Oh, if only I were king. In response to this multifaceted rebellion with both Korah, the priesthood complaint, the Moses civil leadership complaint, as well as yearning for Egypt. In response to this rebellion that's going on for a variety of motivations and factors, Moses calls for a showdown. In verses four to seven, he says, in the morning, you gather your censers Light incense on them, and Aaron and his sons will come and they'll do the same. Let's go before the Lord and let's see who he chooses. Moses does not attempt to argue with them, he does not break down each of their arguments, but he entrusts himself simply to God. He says, Let's just bring this to the Lord and let's see what the Lord says, let's see how he decides. How he judges between us. And judge he does. Verses 18 to 19 say, Every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance to the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. This pillar of fire and smoke, God in his glory appearing. In wrath and in fury. In fact, he tells Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Like Lot and his family leaving Sodom so it can just be annihilated. He wants Moses and Aaron to get out. He's just gonna destroy the whole congregation. Moses and Aaron intercede in verse 22. O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord relents and commands them to make everyone simply get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. These three leaders, who desired to be elevated, are instead brought low. The earth opens its mouth and they go down, down, deep into the earth Verse 35 tells us as well that fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. They wanted to draw near to God, Well, they got their wish. They wanted to make an offering to God. By all means, they got to do so, but they were themselves that offering. They came before God with the fire in their censers and were consumed in the fire of God. Brothers and sisters, there is no weapon or implement or strategy against the Lord. In other words, sin is stupid. It doesn't work. You you can't simply rebel against the Almighty and expect success. You can't go against his word and come away unscathed. God wins. God will triumph. All who plot against him or go against him do so in vain. He laughs Because he sees that his day is coming. All the might of man and the rage and resentment of nations gathered against the Lord are just like ants before him. Let this also cause us to flee from our sin. Like the people of Israel, may we separate ourselves from those evil tents, touching nothing of theirs, lest we be swept away in their sins. It is said of those who died that day in verse 38 that they sinned at the cost of their lives. And that's true for all of us. The wages of sin is death. Now, after all this, you'd think Israel would have learned its lesson, a solid uh, defeat, a clear vindication of uh, who's on the Lord's side and who is not. But there is one more tragic turn to the story. Verse 41, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. More grumbling, more blame shifting in spite of the signs, the wonders being done. So the congregation assembles against Moses and against Aaron and once again, the glory of the Lord appears and Moses and Aaron do not at this point attempt to intercede in the same way they did before. Instead, Moses tells Aaron, go to the altar, take your censer, put fire in it from off the altar and lay incense on it and go out quickly to the congregation because the plague has already started. People are dropping already among the congregation of the people of Israel. And so Aaron took it, as Moses said, runs into the midst of the assembly and gets between the dead and the living and offers his incense and it says he makes atonement for the sins of the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was was stopped. What are we to make of this passage Christ's death and resurrection have brought us to deliverance. We've been led out of captivity across the Red Sea and are headed for the land of promise, but we are not there yet. We are in the wilderness. And this chapter stands as a warning against losing faith in the wilderness on the other side of the sea. A warning against yearning for the old ways of Egypt, the old ways of sin, sin rather than persevering forward in faith to the promised land. Don't yearn for the old ways. Don't desire to cross back over that sea. Purge out the old leaven. Put to death what is earthly in you. Believe the testimony of the apostles about Jesus and follow their teaching. But also recognize the even greater salvation that Christ has brought us. He is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the Exodus, the fulfillment of the high priesthood and the Levitical sacrifices. He is our great high priest who made a full and perfect atonement for our sins by offering up himself. Like the 250 men who drew near to offer sacrifice to the Lord and were themselves the sacrifice. So Jesus, with intentionality, drew near To offer a sacrifice to the Lord, the sacrifice of Himself. He endured the fire of God's judgment against us so that we might be free. And by His death and resurrection, He has secured our justification and right standing in the sight of God forever. He has ran out to us, as it were, we who were languishing under the plague of God's wrath for our sins, and He stood in the gap between the dead and the living. And offered to the Father the sweet smelling aroma of his sacrifice. Through the proclaiming of the gospel by the mouth of apostles and ministers, the Lord Jesus Christ proclaims that the sins of all those who believe are forgiven. Because of him, we have access to the Father. We can draw near. But only so long as we draw near in faith in the Son of God, who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Let us draw near to the throne of the Father in Christ and find it to be a throne of grace and help in time of need. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your death. We praise you for your resurrection. Lord, grant that we would walk by faith in you all our days, being strengthened by the fact that you are, even now, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And you will come again to vindicate, to judge, and to save your people. Lord, to you be all thanks and honor and glory, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen.